KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. California and San Diego are well represented at a major climate summit happening in Scotland. There's plenty of talk and meetings, but what about action and will it even matter? Going to the airport's Terminal 1 can feel like a time warp back to the 1960s, but work is starting on a major project that hopes to bring it into the 21st century. And we'll check in with the San Diego Loyal on the team's first ever playoff run. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. We've seen the consequences that the scientists predicted would occur, all these heavy downpours and floods and droughts and hurricanes and sea level rise and all the rest. And so... There is a widespread consensus now in the U.S. and throughout the world that these leaders really have to come to agreements that uh, lead to much more substantive action more quickly. That's former Vice President Al Gore, whose work more than a decade ago to sound the alarm on climate change was recognized with a Nobel Peace Prize. He's one of the VIPs at the United Nations Conference of Parties, better known as COP26, happening right now in Scotland. California is well represented. The state and San Diego County are considered ahead of the curve when it comes to setting aggressive goals to reduce emissions and other policies to deal with the effects of it. But how much can our relatively small part of the world do when it comes to solving a global problem. Our first guest, Union Tribune columnist Michael Smolens, wrote about that this week. Hey, Michael. Greetings, Matt. Okay, so this climate summit is a two-week event, but much of the prominent world leaders have already come and gone. Would you say that there was a key takeaway or headline to come out of those initial days? Well, let's see. Headline is that world leaders did big things to combat climate change, but not nearly big enough. They did as you know, they 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 agreed to to stop deforestation by the year 2030. They agreed to really cut back on methane gas emissions, which is a big, you know, dangerous greenhouse gas. But as we also know, they they didn't go much uh, far enough. Uh, time is really running out, and it really takes a full global commitment that just hasn't been there. Your call on this week ties in with the conference and California's presence there. Now, we know that Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti actually came down with COVID during this conference. But in general terms, Michael, would you say California had or has a strong showing there? Yes. Some two dozen state lawmakers went. I don't know how many California agency members went and others uh, were, were present. You know, I think it's important, uh, even though the, the, the conference has largely, I think, been a disappointment in the, the terms of, of the future, but California has been recognized as a world leader, not necessarily the world leader in, in combating global warming, certainly has moved far ahead of our own, you know, the United States. Uh, so they wanted to have a good presence there. They felt that was necessary. That's why we've got so many people there. And you mentioned state lawmakers. Assemblywoman Tasha Berner Horvath is there at this conference in Scotland with a lot of her district along the coastline. Is this a top of mind issue for her? Well, absolutely. In fact, uh, not too long ago, a few years ago, she was named 
the chair of the, this revived select committee on sea level rise and the economy. It was interesting because the committee had been dormant until she wanted to get involved and they revived it and named her chair. And I had this conversation with her about, wait a minute, we're California and, and the sea level rise committee isn't really doesn't exist anymore. And she said, yeah, it does boggle the mind. But so they've moved on. Yes, that's a huge issue. As you say, she's from Encinitas. We know the bluffs in Encinitas have collapsed in various places all up and down the coast. But when I talked with her this week, she really did emphasize a broader view. And one of her larger concerns is just the notion of extreme heat. You know, in the here and now, as we know that we've talked a lot about the effect of the heat and global climate change on wildfires. You know, she's talking about in real time to real people and wants to look at things that how can we get more cooling centers in California and certainly, you know, her area, although the coast might not need it as much as inland, but she does have inland areas. And also the notion of retrofitting houses with air conditioning that don't have it. So they're dealing with a lot of, you know, sort of pragmatic notions uh, along with the big existential questions. Assemblyman Chris Ward is also attending, and he talked with you about this term net zero. What did he say about the value in events like this and sharing ideas and examples of what can work on a local level? Both he and Assemblymember Borner Horvath acknowledge that without global action, you know, I didn't say all is lost, but maybe all will be lost. But if and when that happens, it's going to take sort of a granular approach to implement a lot of this stuff at the city, state, local, and national level. So as we've talked about, locally, the city and county of San Diego have moved ahead in, in, in this realm, as has the state. So they're talking with a lot of their counterparts about what they're doing and trading ideas and best practices, but also potentially coordinating their efforts in the future. On Thursday, Greta Thunberg, the young climate activist from Sweden who has emerged as one of the leading voices on this issue, tweeted this. COP26 has been named the most excluding COP ever. This is no longer a climate conference. This is a global North Greenwash Festival, a two-week celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. Does she have a point, Michael? Well, I, I think so. I mean, first, let's you know, credit Greta Thunberg as this rather amazing young woman that has put this on the, the international radar in a way like nobody else has, to be honest. I mean, I, I don't mean to diminish what scientists and people have been doing, but she really did crystallize it for a lot of people. She wasn't invited to speak. She has been invited to speak at other of these UN conferences. I don't think she's complaining specifically about that, but uh, there's this concern that, look, the young people of the world are the ones that are going to be paying the price for our negligence. They should be listened to. They should be front and center. Perhaps she wasn't invited because they know the attitude of which, you know, we, we just experienced what you read and what she said. I think also that there's this concern that, that the lower income nations, the smaller nations, some of the nations that, that will really be more affected by uh, climate change are not getting as much attention as they should. Those are just some of the things I'm thinking that she's talking about. The UT put out a GIF with art from your colleague, the cartoonist Steve Breen. It shows jets of world leaders flying into COP26, spewing fumes into the air with the caption, could have been a Zoom meeting. Is that a valid commentary on how those in powers are, you know, maybe talking the talk, but not so much walking the walk? To a degree, like if, if Al Gore flew there, I don't think you could accuse him of not walking the walk. You talk about putting it on our radar. He did, you know more than, than anybody. I'm a little ambivalent on that. I think, yes, people have to be very responsible personally about what they do. They're not joyriding. And, and I think that, that, look, there are going to be emissions and they're, we're going to have to basically, I think, continue to, to emit these gases in efforts to try to reduce them. I know that sounds counterproductive. I, I think a little bit of a deal was made out of uh, 
actor and environmental activist uh, Leonardo DiCaprio took a, a commercial flight there, I believe, as opposed to private jet and got, you know, pats on the back for that. Good on him. But I, I think that uh, there's a little bit more made out of that than need be on these conferences. As for the Zoom thing, that's not great. And I think in certain times and certain huge issues, the personal interaction does make a difference, perhaps maybe even more so at the local officials level, as we've been talking about, than the uh, the world leader level. Some of the tone of this conference has shifted from how do we stop climate change to how do we deal with the inevitable effects? The U.S. is still a global leader despite retreating from this issue over the past few years. Is the consensus that a lot of valuable time has been wasted there, or is there still hope for meaningful progress? Oh, I, I think there's always hope for meaningful progress. <laughs> the, the hope shrinks and shrinks as time goes on because it's literally a, you know, a clock ticking. Yeah, time was wasted. I mean, the Trump administration had no interest in this, wasn't a science-denying point of view. It just was negligence. And I think the world and the United States suffered in, in, in many, many ways. But, you know, getting to the initial part of the question, Yes, there's a huge focus now on, on, as I mentioned before, you know, dealing with, with effects of global warming in real time, because while we haven't hit the tipping point that's coming in about 11 years or so that they, they project where they really believe catastrophic things will happen, we are experiencing bad impact effects of global warming now with the wildfires. We mentioned the, the bluffs collapsing. Well, while they're dealing with what do they do with homeowners, uh, governments are trying to figure out how do they push back and move further inland infrastructure. And the classic point that we all know about are the train tracks in Del Mar, which, you know, are teetering right on the edge of a, a shaky bluff. Now, they've shored that, shored that up, but there are plans to move that inland, but it's going to take many, many years to do that. I've been speaking with columnist Michael Smolens. You can read his latest on the local representation at COP26 in the San Diego Union-Tribune. And thanks so much for your time, Michael. Thank you for having me on. So what do San Diego's leading climate scientists think about what's happening in Glasgow? We heard from Dr. Ram Ramanathan from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Ramanathan urged world leaders, including the Pope, to make climate change a priority, but he's losing faith. I'm also honestly quite a bit disillusioned with these meetings. There are a lot of talks, not substance, okay? We are going to come with some, you know, meaningful things, but nothing commensurate to the problem we are facing. That was part of a story earlier this week from KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. You can stream it anytime on the KPBS YouTube page. When local attendees at COP26 fly back home, they'll likely be arriving at the San Diego International Airport, which is now under construction. Work to transform Terminal 1 is just getting started. That's the smaller wing of the airport that hasn't changed much at all since the 1960s. If you've ever flown southwest, you know it well. Lori Weisberg covers tourism and hospitality for the Union Tribune. She's here to tell us all about this big project. Okay, so let's start with the basics. How long is this project going to take and how much is it going to cost? Well, it's the biggest project ever undertaken by the, the airport, considerably that's like three times the price that the Terminal 2 expansion and redo was several years ago. So this is about $3.4 There's a possible 
possibility that the price tag could come down a bit, but it's definitely $3 billion or more. And it's it's going to take a while, but maybe not as long, given the enormity of the project, maybe not as long as it, you would think it would. So the first stage of it will be done in 2025 when the first 19 gates of Terminal 1 are completed. What they're doing is demolishing the old Terminal 1, which is a 1960s era building, and they're replacing it with a brand new state-of-the-art facility that will eventually have 30 gates. And so the the full complement of gates will come online in 2027. Okay, so it sounds like it's still a few years off, but once it's done, what should we expect? I mean, people very familiar with Terminal 1 know that it can feel small. So could we be seeing something big and flashy here or maybe something similar to the Terminal 2 expansion that was done a couple of years ago? Yeah, and I think the Terminal 2 expansion is a good, good example because It was much more light and airy, felt much more modern. I think a lot of things that people noticed right away are much improved concessions, including some local concessionaires like Phil's Barbecue and the Prado, so familiar names. And, and I think you're they're not at the concession stage where they're going to they, they've picked them for this terminal one, but you're going to expect to see things like that. And sort of along those lines, Lori, we know that air travel had taken a large dip during the pandemic, the early, early part of the pandemic. Has the airport said if that's rebounding or is, or is there a thought that it may never return to what it was before? It's definitely rebounding. I mean, I couldn't believe it, how empty the airport was in the early days. And, you know, maybe it was 10, 15 percent of the, the volumes they normally see. I think there are some during the summer, I think they were seeing close to what what it was pre-pandemic, not quite there yet. And I think for basic domestic travel, it's pretty much it's not totally back to normal, but it's very close to being back to normal. What they're not seeing, of course, is the international travel that they used to have. And granted, San Diego being a one runway airport doesn't come close to the kind of international travel you'd see in L.A. or San Francisco. But nearly all the airlines that do overseas travel have resumed finally, British Airways, um, Japan Airlines. So we're going to start seeing that ramp up. Uh, A a new route to Canada just started uh, last weekend. It'll eventually return. They don't think that it will never come back. That That is not the case. And sort of while this expansion work is going on, should people expect any sort of disruptions when flying out of Terminal 1? There should be, yeah. There, I mean, there should be a few disruptions and, and you know, it'll affect where people park. And, and so in the early stages, like for instance, in mid-December, the airport says the cell phone lot will be relocated, but they haven't, they haven't said where yet. Then in January, they said that about 500 parking spots in the Terminal 1 surface lot will be eliminated. And then so passengers flying from Terminal 1 should use the Terminal 2 parking plaza. So those kinds of disruptions will be noticeable, but not insurmountable. They, they have plans for diverting people and and mostly it's for more for parking issues that'll be the the main interruption. And we know parking is already limited down there. And, and part of this project also includes another access road to the airport. Why is that needed? Well, I think anybody if, if to getting into the into the airport, I think you 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 see the congestion that really builds up on Harbor Drive. So this this new access road that's about, I think it's at like around Harbor Drive and Laurel. They say that it will actually remove 45,000 vehicle trips per day from North Harbor Drive once it's put in. So it's inevitably that there's congestion now and it's probably only going to get worse. So it's that should make a difference to what people see because the project itself 
there will be more traffic inevitably as more people fly out of the airport. So it's basically to help deal with the bottlenecks that are inevitable. So there's all this new work going on in Buzz, yet we still don't have a real mass transit option for the airport. Your fellow reporter at the UT, Joshua Emerson-Smith, wrote about a new push to link rail service. Can you tell us what's going on with that? To the airport authorities' credit, they rewrote their EIR, their Environmental Impact Report, and they made a much larger commitment to mass transit, including making space between Terminal 1 and Terminal 2 for a transit station for something like a people mover. The big question is, will that people mover ever happen? It's a really expensive plan. It involves having a grand central station, which that also isn't a certainty. It's on maybe property at the Navar site. It's also the cost of doing either above ground or underground people mover. They're actually, I mean, there's lots of engineering and planning for that. They're very serious about it. Sandegs executive director is very serious about it. And so is so are the various member agencies and the transit agencies. But whether that will happen is a big question mark because it is so expensive along with the entire road and transit plan that, that Joshua Emerson Smith wrote about. So it's dependent on the voters to an extent approving funding for this. We just heard from your colleague, Michael Smolens, about climate change. Was that a consideration when deciding to go through with this project? Set aside the emission from planes, but just the location itself being right at sea level there near downtown, a very busy area. Is it just more practical to stay in that area rather than consider building elsewhere, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, and I don't know how climate change per se really had a big was a big factor in this project. But as Michael has written about before, and we have we have searched for another airport location for decades. And ultimately, I think the the politicians, the the jurisdictions agreed that that there just was no other feasible place. So we're we're I shouldn't say we're stuck with, but we're we have this one runway airport. It's very centrally located. It obviously can't grow to be a two runway airport, but given where it is, they decided to double down and invest in, in improving the, the two terminals they have. And so that's what you saw years earlier with Terminal 2 and then Terminal 1, which people have been, and the airlines as well, have been complaining about for years, is really essential to making this a 21st, 22nd century airport. So they're they're basically dealing with what they have, knowing that they're not going to move and so they're going to make it the best airport they can. And obviously, $3 billion is a is a big investment in, in addition to the $1 billion they spent on Terminal 2. I've been speaking with Lori Weisberg, who covers tourism and hospitality for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Thanks so much for your time, Lori. Oh, and thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
That might sound like match day at Torero Stadium, but those are supporters of the San Diego Loyal at the airport, seeing their team off to its first trip to the playoffs. Special thanks to NBC San Diego sports reporter Darnay Tripp for sharing that sound with us. But getting to this point has been anything but a straight line for San Diego's newest pro soccer team. Just as the franchise was getting started, COVID shut it down. And as you just heard, fans are hungry for this moment. Here to talk about the journey is Ryan Young, director of content for the Loyal. If you follow the team on Twitter or Instagram, you've seen his work. Hey, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Going well. Appreciate you being here. Okay, so first off, as we record this right now, you're on the road with the Loyal in San Antonio. What's at stake Friday night? Wow, there's a lot at stake. So it's our first ever playoff game in club history, our short two-year history. So we play San Antonio FC Friday night at 6 p.m. Pacific, and it's a win-or-go-home kind of feeling. Casual soccer fans likely know the leader of the franchise, former Team USA men's star Landon Donovan. We can't go through everyone, but there is there a particular player on this team that stands out or has become sort of a fan favorite this season? Boy, I would say Elijah Martin is a guy who has this great mixture of chemistry. He shows 100% of his authentic personality, so he's a guy that fans you know they'll make those little gifable moments um, of the content we make and I think just seeing how he is on the field whether you meet him in person it's kind of the same same Elijah Martin so I feel like he's somebody very easy to fall in love with and just somebody the fans really adore and let's talk about a little bit of the bumps along the way not on the field but off the field the loyal were ready to go in 2021 and even had a few matches at Torero Stadium before the pandemic shutdown started how did that derail the team and the league's momentum Boy, I think with the context of this year with fans, it really hit. I think it was really hard because you got so used to empty stadiums and trying to make the most of that scenario. And, you know, a lot of the content we did last year was just soccer focused because that's all we could do. So we tried, you know, to bring you in on a little moments during training, the lighthearted stuff as much as possible. But I tell you what, that first game back with fans at Torero in June of you know, this year, it was like, wow, this is what we were missing. And I think we've seen a level of growth in the supporters of this club. You know, we had a sellout crowd, I think, in you know the second to last home game. And that was really, really humbling to see. So the challenges almost get erased really quickly because of what you see this team has kind of grown into so far in its short time and just how much love San Diegans have shown us. And you sort of talked about bringing uh, fans in. How does it, how does the team stay connected and engage the fan base during a time like that? Boy, I think, I think you try a little bit of everything, to be honest. I have a philosophy with social. I've been doing this, especially in sports, the last five years, just dedicated to social content. And I always just say, you know, you got to experiment a lot. You know, you got to try different stuff because, you know, the guy that doesn't play at all on your team might be the best personality and most engaging or might have, you know, his fans back in his home state of Wyoming that are just rabid for him. And, you know, so I always just try to say, you know, experiment, be, you know, stay surprised by what could uh, be connecting you. But I think for what we do, we just stay authentic to the personality. So I'm not doing a lot of PR tricks. We get a lot of really great access from Landon Donovan, our head coach and the players. And, you know, I think the comfort level of me being there really with them from the start has allowed them to be more comfortable and not look at me as maybe a guy with a camera in their face, but just uh, as a human. So I just try to stay in the mindset of what our fans want to see and supporters want to see. And that's led us to, to good connection. 
Veterans Day is coming up, and part of the loyal strategy to build authentic community ties is a focus on military outreach. You're a veteran yourself, having served in Iraq. How does that experience shape how you approach this part of the job with the loyal? You know, I, I reflect on that, I think, especially during a time around Veterans Day a lot, because there's not there's not really a ton of guys that I served with in the infantry that are doing a little bit of jobs like mine. But I, I want to say sports is the closest thing that I've found to relating to the things that I went through in the military, you know, the cohesion of a team, success or failure. So for my job specifically, I want to say that, that, you know, the grind I had in the infantry, if you don't do it right, you got to do it again, or not really having control over your time and having to spend, you know, 16, 18 hour days, sometimes turning around stuff. It, it doesn't really matter to me. I feel like my mind is just wired to want to deliver the best that I can. So I feel like when I think of the military and what it brings, I think just the selflessness has uh, carried into this job and allowed me to succeed. And it's great to have an organization that is supportive and very forward with that. You know, we have a Navy veteran, uh, Russ Thompson, who, you know, a retired helicopter pilot. Uh, and we talk a lot about how this has really become a place that we feel like our military experience is kind of not only accepted, but like they don't take it for granted and they really kind of welcome people with that past experience. Okay. So there will be a watch party in San Diego on Friday night. What are the details with that and how else can people tune into this match? Yeah, I'll hit on the where, where to watch. If you can't get to the watch party, it's we're locally in San Diego on your view, which is Cox channel four, as well as a Spanish broadcast on Azteca America canal 33. If you have an ESPN plus subscription, you can also tune into the game that way. But if you're in San Diego, if you want to be part of this culture, whether you've been to a match or just finding out about us, uh, you know, we're going to have a bunch of supporters, a bunch of fans really having a good party at Stone Liberty Station. And everything starts at five o'clock. Game kicks off at 6 p.m. And the first drink is on us. So that's a that's a fun way to get the party started. And you guys have had sort of a, a, a very loyal group of fans. Tell us about who they are and have they been sort of showing up this year uh, in the first season back since uh, pandemic restrictions? Yeah, you know, I think you say that and I just think of our locals. That's the name of our main supporter group. We have two others with Rainbow Loyals and Chavos de Loyal, but the locals have been there from the start and have grown exponentially. And, you know, I think the best way I can relate it is I'll talk to the players and some of these guys have been playing in this league for years and they'll say, you know, our supporter group, no matter if we're losing three to one, whether we're tied, whether we lose, whether we win, these guys and girls just bring it for 90 plus minutes every time. And it's funny, I'll bring my camera in there to get some shots. And I've had to like adjust the audio levels on my camera because it always just peaks and blows out the audio because they're so loud. Our guys have just really valued, you know, that support. And I think they feel it as you guys played that clip. Uh, you know, they were at the airport to send us off to San Antonio. And it's really, it's really humbling. And we're really grateful to have such a strong supporters group. And we see the growth uh, really taking off with that. So humbling and thankful for it. I've been talking with Ryan Young, director of content for the San Diego Loyal Soccer Club. That's at San Diego Loyal on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much for your time, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable, and thank you to my guests, Michael Smolens and Lori Weisberg from the San Diego Union-Tribune, and Ryan Young from the San Diego Loyal. If you missed any part of our show, you can listen anytime on the KPBS Roundtable podcast. I'm Matt Hoffman. Join us next week on Roundtable. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.